You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and SJ Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Here we go. It's the X-Man Podcast. I am your host, Doc Coyle. Thank you so much for tuning in, checking out the program, and telling your friends. And hopefully you will you will tell your friends about this when you hear this. Uh, hey, last episode with Dave Silvera. See, I'm screwing it up already. Uh, Ex-Corn drummer, currently of Bias. Big, big episode. Got picked up by probably more outlets than any any show i've done so far Loudwire, blabbermouth a lot of places made some news interesting i didn't know a lot of that stuff wasn't out there so you never know what's going to happen thank you guys and so hopefully we got some new listeners who may have stuck around they're like you know what this is not a celebrity on this one so i will not be tuning in but hopefully you will because i think this is going to be a great episode actually i know it's a great episode um but uh before we get into that just want to let you guys know i'm i'm in manchester you know, a kingdom, you know, had a couple gigs, a couple points. It's going very well. No, I'm enjoying things out here uh, with Bad Wolves, doing some big festivals and some headline shows that are surprisingly going very well. We have an enthusiastic fan base and uh, sometimes things are going, you know, well. And, you know, I'm like, OK, you're waiting for like, you know, Ashton Kutcher to come out the, you know, the corner and be like, hey, you've been punked. This ain't really happening. So. <laughs> Sometimes things are going too well. I get a little, you know, get. I'm, I start questioning things. So, you know, it's been it's been interesting because I kind of want to talk a little bit about ego, you know, and and performing, you know, because you know I talk a lot about this show about uh, it's all in many ways self deprecating and confronting one's shortcomings that's kind of i think in many ways become the crux of my my personality in recent years uh but that can actually i think have detrimental effects to things like performing where sometimes you're you gotta let the ego take over and kind of be larger than life you have to think you're great in order to communicate something to an audience that kind of lets them suspend disbelief and almost allow them to put you on some kind of pedestal to enhance their experience, if that makes sense. 
And it's something I've been struggling with because when I was younger and I didn't really have any boundaries or sense of what was my ego and what the real person was, you know, it was really effective for me for performing and being able to kind of communicate this rock star aura or, you know, larger than life figure. And now that I've become a more grounded person and, 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 and more in contact with kind of my uh, shortcomings, it's like, it's almost like a, I wonder if that makes me play worse sometimes where I'm not able to communi- communicate that and that being kind of a dis- disillusioned uh, e- egomaniac crazy person, while it might have all these poor effects in your real life, actually makes you a really compelling performer. I'm having kind of trouble trouble with this because I'm having a couple guitar parts that are kind of messing me up. And I'm like, I don't know if it's a physical thing or if it's a mental thing. Sometimes you, you'll like screw up a part a couple times and then you'll just kind of get in your head and, you know, build it up. And you, that ends up making you mess up even more. So I don't know. I've just been I've just been in this position where I'm like, you know, do I succumb more to the ego or do I try and utilize that thing? to kind of hype myself up more or kind of, you always hear this in sports more often, right? Like you'll hear a player like, I'm the best in the world. I'm the greatest. I'm the great rappers do this shit all the time too. I'm the greatest MC ever. And I'm like, you don't, but you don't really hear guitar players or singers or I guess, you know, for the most part, I don't, I don't, I feel like I haven't heard much of that, you know, most of the best players I know, at least on the guitar side of things are, are the most humble. They have, and they have no business being that humble in many ways because they're so good. So it's something I'm kind of struggling with and, uh, you know, just something I've been thinking about and wanted to communicate to you guys. What do you think? Should I start like, you know, dressing crazy, you know, wearing like a lot of scarves, you know, start painting half my body black, like homeboy and Limp Bizkit or something, you know, cause I think all that stuff allows you to kind of separate and be a little bit bigger than yourself and not question. So I don't know. I need to get, it's like Austin Powers lost his mojo. Maybe to get my mojo back. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, congratulations to the Toronto Raptors uh, for winning the the NBA championship. Uh, I'm I was was uh, how many hours ahead? I was far ahead. I was like four, f- five or six hours uh, ahead. So I had to, <laughs> I huddled up in the, the the Manchester Academy, the university where I had Wi-Fi. And went to the because the building was closed, but I just, you know, because it was kind of raining outside. So I just stayed there with my phone with the Wi Fi and watched the second half of the game. And I was like jumping up and down and pumping my fist and yelling on an empty street. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And I feel really terrible for the Golden State Warriors for uh, Clay Thompson and his terrible injury and Kevin Durant and his terrible injury. I, you know, you know, if they're going to lose, I definitely don't want it to be that way. Uh, but more likely, they if those guys would have played, they would have won. Um, so, but I but I'm always gonna root for the underdog, and I think Kevin Durant going to the Warriors um, has not been that great for the league, and, and you know instead of just having this kind of villain, but um, but I I really like the Toronto Raptors team, and gotta love Canadians, and you know Kawhi Leonard, the the silent assassin, the Terminator. Shout out to those guys, all right, and have some maple syrup and some. Uh, you know, Tim Horton's donuts, you know, to, to celebrate. Anyway, we have a show sponsor this week. Like that transition. I'm a real professional. 
This is a band called Ruin Star, and we're going to play a track entitled Mastador. Check it out.
So that was Ruin Star with their track Mastador, and that was from their self-titled EP, and the band name is spelled R-U-I-N-S-T-A-R, and that's all one word. They are from Los Angeles, and that was produced by friend of the show, X-Men alumni, the great Sonny Mayo, and I really enjoyed that song. Me, I'm a... I'm a prog rock guy, you know, anything gets a little spacey, gets a little, you know, out there up in the in the in the heavens and stuff. And especially like they had that that keyboard line, kind of eighties ish kind of keyboard line right before the vocals kicked in. I, they they pretty much had me from from there and then the vocals kicked in. I and I really started to like it. But uh you can check these guys out at ruinstar.bandcamp.com and you can actually download this EP for free. Isn't that Amazing. And you can also check out their website, ruinstar.com. And all the thanks in the world to them for sponsoring the show. We appreciate it. I appreciate it. I don't know who we is. I'm just, I'm, I'm here by myself. When I say we, I'm the royal we, dude. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think I lost my train of thought there. All screwed up trying to, trying to talk some shit. Anyway, if you would like to sponsor the show, you know what to do. Please send me a message on social media or drop me an email at thexmanpodcast at gmail.com. And with that out of the way, let's talk about our guest. We have a man named Jerry Club. He is a manager. He works for a band called Suicide Silence. And, you know, I try and get as many industry professionals on here as possible because I find their stories to be sometimes even more interesting than some of the, the, the band guys because... The band guys are out there, but a lot of the the managers, the agents, the the publicists, the the label people, they're they're so behind the scenes, you know, that we don't really know a lot what what goes on. And, and I always want this this thing to be uh, educational, and I always want there to be insight, you know, in a you know in a way that because you know perhaps you're you're in into the show and you're into music but you know maybe you're not cut out to be a musician but you're interested in maybe being a manager or a booking agent or something like that and so this tells you there are so many paths to be involved in in this world and, and Jerry's a guy I've, I've known for quite some time but you know we've never even gotten this deep with stuff so I think uh, if you like the band Suicide Silence if you're just interested in the industry and just you know great stories I think this is a really great episode so I'm gonna stop talking shit and I'm going to let the conversation speak for itself. So please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Jerry Club. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died. And while we're still talking about them so long after... It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember. The ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.
I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. So Jerry Club, welcome to the uh, X-Men Podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, yo, did you watch the NBA draft lottery yesterday? Or were, you, were you aware of it? Do you care? Here's the thing. I typically don't follow a lot of, you know, off-season activity. Well, it technically is in still season, in playoffs. Right. But I typically don't follow the draft prospects because I don't follow college basketball at all. Mm-hmm. But I will say I'm getting even more involved in NBA than ever before. I run a number of fantasy leagues. I'm like fantasy NBA obsessed. So I'm starting to pay attention is to Is that like things. a business or are you just interested in it? Uh, let's call it a hobby, a hobby. But if I could get paid to do it, I would, uh, I would absolutely turn it into a, a, a business prospect. But isn't it just gambling? Kind of. I mean, it depends on, you know, whether you're talking about daily fantasy or, or just working for like a fantasy related site. Um, you know, like Matthew Barry, for instance, who just, you know, made his career with fantasy football related stuff at ESPN and mm-hmm. everything is just. He's like the go-to fantasy guy. I'd be lying if I said I didn't wish that was me because I just love fantasy NFL and fantasy NBA. But as far as what you said about the the, the draft lottery, I'm certainly aware of it. I didn't watch it, but I, I follow, uh, you know, NBA-related news. I watch, you know, I, I, Undisputed I, and hear everybody talk about everything all the time. I had a very emotional day. Let's just say that. Because <laughs> you're a Knicks guy, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was just a terrible day for the Knicks. <laughs> no, it actually wasn't terrible. It was. It was, of all the outcomes that could have happened, it was prob- It was basically, you know, they got the third pick. So they got the the third best outcome that, that, that could have happened because they could have felt fallen to five. Yeah. And everyone basically thinks this draft is like three guys. We'll, we'll see that. But it's, it's been emotional. But I know you're, you know, involved. So I figured I'd, I'd, I'd ask you. But, uh, you know, on to subject matter, that's probably more relevant to why people listen to this show. Um, you're an art, artist manager. You, you work with Suicide Silence for, for how long now? Well, I discovered the band in 2004. I managed them for about 12 years, was let go. And then I started managing them again about, 
six months ago or so. So uh, my second time around, and they are currently my only band on the artist roster because I, you know, essentially took a break altogether from managing and then was lured back. So I imagine we can, you know, get into some of that uh, here within the podcast. But yeah, Ricochet Management is my management company and i just have suicide silence at the moment were they the first band you managed they were the first band i managed and so what is what is discovering someone entail discovering someone uh as far as how it went with suicide silence i mean essentially the band's a local band they're from the corona area the showcase theater existed in corona well, yeah, they back played then. with god forbid at the showcase uh, they played with everybody there and uh i was working at prosthetic records at the time and i uh saw what were band. you doing over there I was kind of like the promo publicity guy. For a while, it was just me and EJ, uh, who owns Prosthetic. It was just us two in a small office in West LA for a bit. Um, and, you know, we had some new signings, and uh, it was right around the time Lamb of God was like popping and, and going over to, to Sony Epic, all this kind of stuff. And, and a couple of our younger bands, I think it was the Acacia Strain and Light the City, were both on a bill in Corona. And so I kind of went as like the label guy. And I was just getting familiar with those bands at that point. I hadn't worked there uh, a long time. And Suicide Silence, I remember they got put above Light the City on the marquee. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, they're getting video content for our bands. And I'm like, who's this band playing above our signed band? Clearly an unsigned band I've never heard of. And so... You know, I kind of made it a point to to watch it and kind of like with, a, with a chip on your shoulder. Yeah, with a chip on my shoulder, and I'm going to kind of heckle it. And, and since they played between two of the prosthetic artists, it's like I was going to kind of end up seeing them anyways, probably. But so I kind of watched it with a why is this band build above, and then I quickly realized, oh, that's why they got something brewing in this local Corona area that clearly was like next level. And, and Mitch's performance in particular, you know, vocally was something that I had just never even seen before really and i immediately got their demo took it back to ej said dude you got to sign this band uh got him to the point to go out to i think a denny's or something with uh the band and i and he eventually was just... pr- prosthetic spares no expense <laughs> yeah and this is the best denny's in all of corona california the best yeah ej uh essentially decided that they just weren't quite ready didn't have what it took at that time and then i basically said man I'm see up. see he's so you got to look at that shit you know speaking of basketball like yeah. we have to get the rights right so it's like okay uh you know this european guy he's not gonna be able to come over for a couple years but you draft him anyway yeah and that way when he's ready then you bring him over you know what i'm saying like you, you just got to get him on the contract all right all right EJ? not that i'm sure he knows more about uh <laughs> heralding young talent than i do but uh you know just you know, if it was me, I'm just saying, just get, just get, get them on that, on the, the line, which is dotted. Yeah. And I was that young guy that was obviously excited to be working at a label and, and kind of discovering something. And it's like, I wasn't hired to be an A&R guy. It's not like I expect him to just listen to me and sign whatever yeah. I bring in, but I was so confident in the band and was, you know, a couple, within a couple of months later, I was not completely enthralled with the job at Prosthetic. I just decided to leave the label and and manage the band full time. So I essentially became the band's manager um, shortly after discovering them, surrounding them almost, you know, being considered to be a prosthetic. And then I was kind of doing both at the same time and then left prosthetic pretty shortly after to just pursue it full time, which involved investing 
you know, all the money in my savings account and using the powers of MySpace and man, so, those were the days. So, so that was how I discovered that band. So, but they were a big MySpace band, right? They were, but I basically started that MySpace page really like with, I, mean, I don't know, with zero, with 50, with a hundred. And then that was before. The were you like doing the things where you just like add people like, Bro, all day? Like, was I, <laughs> this was before there were friend adding limits at all. And I, and to this day, I still believe I'm one of the first people probably definitely in the metal realm that embedded a QuickTime video on MySpace back when like MySpace had a certain kind of HTML coding you could put on there. Yeah. It was before there was a MySpace video player at all. And I filmed the band playing at the showcase and cause I'm a video guy. That's what I went to school for. Uh, I edited uh, a bit multi-camera uh, thing I shot for them, put it up there and it just blew up. I was hosting it on my website and just so embedding So this is before it. you and could do YouTube videos? Dude, YouTube wasn't even around. Yeah. Like this was right before YouTube even hit, I think, or it was definitely before YouTube was at all something that, that you would go to. And so before YouTube, I uploaded a QuickTime MOV to my mentalsuplex.com website and then the hits would just go through the roof as it was embedded on this thing. I had to like upgrade my server, all this stuff, but that generated so much activity. And to this day, a lot of people come to me and say, dude, I discovered suicide silence off that video they had on their MySpace." And but they would, they could only there. watch it from there though. They couldn't share it. Exactly. Yeah. It was just, you had to go to the MySpace page to watch it. It was an embed. It wasn't like a savable video really, but yeah, the, the no friend adding limits really, was a game changer when I realized that I could just click add friend, add friend, add friend, and I could go to all these, you know, similar bands I considered similar metal bands that I wanted to take the, the fans of. Um, and I'll never forget that me and Chris Howorth from in this moment around the same era, like both bands were getting big on MySpace and him and I were communicating about new strategies MySpace would implement, how we could get around them, the friend ad limit. And so I was involved very early on with, with Chris and Maria and with them even talking about starting in this moment. And, you know, in those original conversations, I was talking to, to Chris about what I had started doing with Suicide Silence on MySpace and how like it works. And then he started doing the same and he would share tidbits with me. And we ended up building both bands up significantly. Were you managing with them? Or there was a lot of, no, I, the, we had conversations early on, but I never managed in this moment. I was just around from the get go. And, and Chris was a, a friend. Uh, so who were the big, the, the big MySpace? We had Job for a Cowboy was probably Dude, the, the biggest. They were my competition. Job yeah. for a Cowboy was like up We're, there with Suicide Sounds where I had to feel like I was versus them almost. I, I, I couldn't disagree more. I think if anything, it was the same genre. So you basically just were part of the same movement. Yeah, but there was this unspoken competition between the two bands. Job for a Cowboy had a really great sounding EP. They were kind of, it was kind of known that they... Um, Which is probably their, still to this day their most uh, exactly. famous release. But it was kind of known that they were better off financially, for lack of a better word, than uh, than me and the Suicide Silence guys. And REP didn't sound as good. And it just, there was this this difference. And I felt like I was battling their their play counts and their their friend numbers on MySpace in a healthy way. Like that competition fueled me to make sure that Suicide Silence got bigger and surpassed that band. But the bands were friends and they would tour together and there was no animosity, but it simply was, you know, both bands coming up around the same time. And then you had Bring Me the Horizon in the UK doing a similar thing back yeah. when they were of that style. And so there was kind of just, 
I wanted to be number one. I wanted to be on the top, and I felt like I had a real grasp on what Suicide Silence brought to the the metal scene at that time that was beyond what these other bands had. And I figured if I could just reach the biggest possible audience and make their MySpace as big as possible, um, and get them signed and do all that stuff, that you know, that the rest would be history, and I'd make my investment back and maybe be a manager full time. You know, and that's so. Did you have you had another job? Uh, I did not really, well, I, I was at prosthetic for a little bit. Then I stopped to manage suicide sounds full time, poured all my money in there, got so broke that I had to move back to Arizona where I'm from for, for about a year in like 2008 ish. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I, before I did that, I worked at Abacus for a bit, which was like an extension of century of, media, of century media yeah. I think in the year. Steve, like, you worked with Steve Joe? Uh, Steve Joe signed Suicide Silence to Century Media, so I worked with them on, in that aspect. But when I was at Abacus, it was like Ray Harkins and oh, right. yeah, uh, Ray, and, Ray. A f- and a few other folks that were. I still got to get Ray on this damn show. We got to. Yeah, dude, that. I haven't seen him in a long time. Do you listen to his podcast? Uh, I have before, but but not lately. Shout out to to Ray Harkins with One Hundred Words Podcast, also frontman of the band Taken, and yeah. uh, just uh, used to work at Century Media and just a good dude. Yeah, so I worked at Abacus for a bit to. Uh, to, to help pay the bill, so to speak, while I had a deep investment in, in, uh, in Suicide Silence. And, and I'd gotten Suicide Silence signed to Century Media around that time. And so there were some advances involved, but those basically just helped pay back money I had already put in. So it was a bit of a struggle then, but just the signing of Suicide Silence to Century Media was a big accomplishment because me being a young manager that had moved to California to go to college, film school, all that, and just didn't know a single soul in the state when I moved out here just to be able to to find a band basically at a local show build them up from their garage where they basically practice to this day um to the level that they could even be signed and then beyond that was just it was it was that accomplishment and that sense of family i was developing with those guys that really kept kept me going even through those tough financial times but yeah well there's a couple things that i think are kind of interesting about this because you know, when I moved out to L.A., I was co-managing some bands and kind of helping out some bands and thinking about possibly transitioning into in, into being a manager. And, you know, I spoke with, uh, I don't even know if I should say who it is, but I spoke with a, a prominent manager and they kind of broke something. And I was, it was a prospect that I might work with this, this person. And they kind of broke something down, like right off the out the gate that kind of demoralized me in a way, but it was very sobering and kind of very real. And he's, and he's basically like the most important thing when you're managing bang or looking for bands to manage is do they have an audience? And that's pretty much, he's like, if they're good is kind of like third or fourth thing on the, on the uh, priority list, because basically it's like, listen, ultimately this is a job we're here. You know, we have to, you know, we're not here to just be buddies with the band. We're not. It's like, and if the band isn't making money, then you literally can't afford to do it. And so, you know, it's funny when you talk to like upcoming bands who are trying to make it, make it, you know, kind of get ahead. They're like, well, you know, we're trying to get a manager and we're trying to do this. And I don't think the thing they realize is that most managers who are established don't want to deal with a band that doesn't isn't making money because the amount of years it takes before a band becomes profitable even if they're on a really good track is going to be at least 2 years 
usually, you know, and that's a band that's actually having success. Um, so you have to ask yourself, do I have two years <laughs> to invest? Do I have that, that, that time? Or it's a situation where there's a manager who has bands that are making money. And then in a way they can afford to not make money off band C or D in that interim time, you know, but then you were in the situations like this happened with God forbid, where we weren't making money early on, but we were still accruing uh, debt to our manager. So by the time we'd have like a end of a cycle, we would owe, you know, and we just kept building it up. And I was like, at the end of our cycle, like I said, we were going out making 200 bucks a night, 250 bucks a night. We were never a big merch band. So there was never really money left over. You know, if we, if we got to, you know, split up a few hundred bucks at the end of the tour, it was amazing. So we were like, I only, we were like, I don't even know how we're going to pay this off. You know, and I just think it's interesting that you kind of went in, which is how a lot of people get into management is they just find a band that they uh, are passionate about and kind of you're almost like you don't know enough about the industry to know that you probably shouldn't. Dude, <laughs> spend I, two years I did it all by accident. Doc. Yeah. I'm telling you, I didn't go there thinking, hey, I'm going to find a band to manage. I wasn't working at a label so I could be a manager. I, yeah. It had never crossed my mind. I thought I was going to be, you know. Went from directing music videos to hopefully directing films or editing films, writing feature length scripts, all that stuff is what I thought I would be doing. So this kind of threw my whole life for a loop, finding Suicide Silence. And, you know, from that point, I did develop my management company, uh, find other bands to develop. But as you just said, what's so tough about, you know, me being a young independent manager was that I couldn't get any bands that were already making money that had careers that I could just collect a commission from. Like I had to build from the ground up multiple bands. Some worked, you know, better than others, but ultimately I, I sort of, I'm passionate about taking a band from the bottom, from like nothing, from nowhere to a place where they can have a career being, you know, in that band and, and uh, making music. And, you know, I did it with both Suicide Silence and Memphis Mayfire pretty much from the ground up. Uh, so, so to do it twice, you know, that's, those are my, my big accomplishments in the, in the artist management realm. Um, but then, you know, at the same time I had other, bands that just didn't pop in that sort of way for various reasons so you know, hard. It's, just, it's, it's tough to even keep a band together and when you're managing all these personalities and everyone has different priorities and so you know you can never really say exactly what went wrong in every uh situation but i clearly learned that you know it's rare to take a band from you know from not making money to making money but it's also extremely fulfilling and uh yeah, it had me really thinking, can I make a career doing this? Because I have, I felt like I was running into that that bad timing realm of the careers that I was interested in because it's like directing music videos straight out of college and stuff at a time where music video budgets were, were tanking and yep. Headbangers Ball and Uranium were like, were starting to like disappear and things like that. And just, you know, people could just get high quality cameras at Best Buy and make their own videos. And everybody was a filmmaker and a music video maker. And so it just, that went downhill fast. And then in the band management realm, man, if I had started 10 years earlier, instead of, you know, 2005, like managers were really making money because bands were making money and it was like a real career. And I'm just like late to the game again. It's just like, man, how to, to have a career starting out managing in the you know mid to late 2000s in the metal that, genre, that was in which the, is tough that was basically the the desert years because it was okay. right right when the record sales started to decline 
in the metal world, they had already started to decline other genres a couple years before, but it really started to hit metal in that 2005, 2006, 2007 range. And it was before streaming had arrived. So there was that income wasn't there. So it was, that was just a rough period because you, you started to see labels close up shop. You started to see them just slashing their, um, their teams, you know, and, and people were getting laid off and magazines were closing up and, it was because people don't realize that, especially during during that time, you know, it wasn't just that people think, oh, well, less we sell less records and so the artists are suffering. But you got to understand if, if budgets go from, oh, this label uh, average budget was 50000 to make a record to 15000 it is the people who make the videos who all of a sudden are, aren't eating. It's the photographers. It's the pub, uh, you know, the publicity people, and then that trickles down to the media, and then you, it just has this kind of just crazy effect, and you know, and it, it has bounced back in a, in a really big way, and a lot of that, unfortunately, a lot of that money is probably still not getting back to the artists and possibly some of these other people, and going more to the labels and the um, the companies, though, the Spotify's and Apple Music's, they're they're doing very well. <laughs> Yeah. As rough as that time was, it was some of the, the better years in my management career because there was there was a scene developing around suicide silence and, you know, death core that they came to call it and things like that, even metal core to a, to a certain extent, just as far as people buying up merchandise, attending shows, there was there was an excitement. There were still a lot of these touring festivals uh, happening, starting out. And so, you know, the climate as much as it's it's going in the right direction with the the level of streaming activity these days it's also not quite the exciting scene that it was in the late 2000s with some of this the dawn of kind of certain subgenres of of metal so i'm curious to see where it all uh goes from here and it's certainly an interesting ride being back with you know the same band again yeah so um one of the things i'm i'm interested in is how uh you being a new manager and not having a lot of connections, did you find, especially in LA where it's, even though there's opportunity, it can be a bit closed off and people don't really want to show you the time of day or uh, be kind of open. Did you find kind of penetrating the, the industry out here from a, I guess, from a networking standpoint to be difficult or people give you a hard time or not want to take a call or how, you know, how, how tough was that in the, in the early days? Uh, there's definitely a certain level of, of toughness to, to all of that, but I think probably similar to, to what I know of you is that if you're, you know, known as a good dude, a good reputation, someone that like doesn't do wrong by others typically and all that kind of stuff, it, it tends to, to pay off in the end if you spend your time mingling with the, the right people and, and if you're about the right things. And I certainly you know, use my relationships from college radio, um, where I'd gotten to know the promo people at certain labels. Uh, you know, I, I, where'd you go to college? Chapman university in orange, California. I went to film school there. Um, and I was also the metal director for my college radio station. So I had a radio show and I would be the one that fills the library up with hard rock metal CDs back when that was more of a thing than it is today that labels would service college radio stations. Um, and I got By the to way, can I, I just want to, <laughs> You know, I probably should. Uh, I'll probably talk to George Valley about this when I have him on the show. But um, what was that like? Because you know, our old manager was the Syndicate, who was mm-hmm. one of the companies that would service uh, bands' music to college radio. 
what were those conversations? How, how would it, how would those companies or those those radio people how would they service a college radio station? Dude, it it is ridiculous how that stuff worked back in that. In how that did it day. work? I, I think I was around the, the tail end of it. So they that doesn't but they, happen. They were, I mean, it's CMJ used to be a big thing in New York, which was, you know, I guess it probably still goes on, but where all the radio people would get together and all the, you know, college reps would come out. And, you know, I I did that a couple of years, but as far as I know, it's really gone by the wayside as far as an important element of. uh, Is that just because people aren't listening to radio like they? Yeah, I think the college radio stuff is. There's just no emphasis there unless you're one of like the top tier ones in the country or something. And there's just a few of them. Yeah, that being one. Um, but no, back then, I mean, you know, like you said, these companies would be paid to service uh, colleges with the music and, and they, and then you would, on my end, I would tell them how many spins it so got, it, it, it got by people. And so they would be so aggressive about But they wanting, would send you, so they'd send you the music. And, right. with, a, with a one sheet that explains, yeah. you know, what the record is and it's, it's highlights what the, the focus track should be. Actually, hold, I'm going to tell you what I think they do. You tell me if I'm right. Yeah. So they call you up. And they're like, hey, did you play blank record? And if you're like, nah, we didn't really play it, then you go, they go, why not? <laughs> is that what it is? <laughs> Basically. I mean, dude, they go to the point of I won like a broadsword in a in a promo contest from one of these companies. I forget that's, if that's it was bribery, I forget bro. if it was bribery. the Sin or someone else, but that band Rhapsody, who are like oh, uh, yeah, yeah. like a kind of like a power fantasy metal. power metal band. Yeah. yeah. They uh, you know, part of spinning their record is if you gave the record a certain amount of like spins or claimed you did or whatever back to the to the companies that are servicing it you get entered into like a drawing or whatever it's kind of like their you know their secret payola way of 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 trying to get you to spin the stuff and i won like a legit broadsword like, you still have like it? heavy and I, I still do man it's in my storage somewhere but no, you gotta hang that up right dude, right above you know like the uh that's what i got out of college radio i got a sword <laughs> right, right from above the fireplace yeah, like Samuel Tarley's family sword. Yeah, but yeah, they would be very aggressive about um, you know trying to get spins at college radio stations. But so much of it, and I'm not gonna you know say how much of it was kind of like faked on my end. But let's just say I I was at a radio station that was like very low, uh, you know, on the totem broadcast pole. range and on the totem pole. But they don't necessarily know that, so I still get the perks of receiving all the albums and saying, oh, it gets these spins and all this. But how many people are really hearing it? And and not just at my station, but just any other stations across the country, it's really tough to know. So it's kind of this game of how important is each college radio station? Who really, who who really knows, but relationship wise, it was important to me because I was able to meet people that I then would shoot music videos for their respective record labels because they would find out I'm a a video person. And then that got me in the door interning at at Century Media. Uh, And I was interning there probably right around when Gone Forever came out, uh, your guys' release, if not right after. And, uh, and, you know, and that relationship in turning at Century Media led to me working at Prosthetic, which led to me being in Corona to discover Suicide Silence and become a manager. So it all started with college radio and as silly as it is, like, play our records, play our records on this half-ass station where I know I don't have a lot of listeners, but I'm happy to, to spin these records and to build these relationships. It luckily happened at a, you know, a crucial time for me that... That steered my career. So there does there does seem to be a certain pipeline between college radio and the the metal labels. Like a lot of people tend to come from that world, and I guess they they have some interface with the companies. And then obviously, if you're doing college radio and if it's metal and underground music, you're already passionate, and they're like, oh, they're young, they'll work for nothing. 
they're yeah. excited. You yeah. Know. A lot of the young upstarts came from working at various college radio stations because yeah. that's kind of where you would find the, you know, what the next generation of people that are going to be working in metal, like yeah. where, where do they come from? If there's someone like me and, and don't know everybody and. Yeah, but you're connected you know, like, to the, you're, you know, you're connected to the youth, you know, what's going on. You're, you know, you're not, you know, uh, <laughs> you're not shot and <laughs> over it. <laughs> but um, no, you don't know what I think it actually is kind of in, in hindsight. So determination, our you know first record with Century Media went number one at CMJ and FMBQ and all that stuff, and I think the benefit of it is it's essentially one sheet fillers, right? So these are benchmarks that you can put on your, uh, you know, your bio, and you can send it out, and it's a way to say, hey, the band is doing blank. You know, and it makes it makes it seem like you're kicking ass. And I think it is relevant because at least at that time, it's not like it wasn't, you know, it was organic. I think people played it because they did probably like it. And it was reflective. You you know, we would go into these little towns. We go play Syracuse. We go play Ohio or something. And then someone from that local radio station would come out and it wouldn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden it's going to blow your band up outside of, like you said, like a WSU or something like that. But it would kind of, you'd have one kind of ambassador in that little town that who knows, they, they, you know, they'll play it or they'll tell someone and that person tells someone. And it's just a way of kind of laying seeds, or at least it was back then. So in, in a sense, maybe we're just kind of talking about uh, a bygone kind of pastime because now with the internet and social media maybe those things just don't have the impact they did yeah it was kind of like a street team sort of thing with with radio stations in various uh you know areas kind of championing your your record like you said and i and i think since there were no streaming numbers back then no video view counts things like that like you said these accolades were things you could use on a one sheet to show that you're able to accomplish things before you're before you're super established you're establishing and i think that's what you know, a lot of that college radio game was about. And I, the only time I really remember seeing it make a huge difference was with Avenged Sevenfold's Waking the Fallen. Like that album got service to me and I think by the syndicate. And, yeah. then I, and then I remember like the hype around like all these stations are playing it a ton and it's getting all this activity and, and it seemed really like real and big, it, and big to me. And then sure enough, that ended up at some level being a part of the process that ignited that, yeah. that band. So it worked. It just had, it had it all. It was basically totally. like they made the great record that was commercially viable. They had a great look. They were on warp tour. They, it was, everything was happening at all at the, all the right time. So you're probably seeing just that heat from the, from the ground up. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask about suicide silence in particular is kind of having the vision of seeing where where heavy music was going to see something that was that extreme right and thinking or having the foresight to say all right i get it there's like this death metal scene over here and that kind of really had its peak in the early mid 90s in terms of record sales and kind of commercial success but you know more or less was a kind of a big underground thing right you know what for you well, or was this even something that that even took place? Where did you were you able to see that? Okay, this is really extreme, like death metal or things like that in the past. But I can see this getting to a wider audience. And the thing that really stands out about Suicide Silence, I guess, with you know, Bring the Rise and probably being the other band with this, is that girls liked it. 
<laughs> you know, and, and maybe that was, you know, a, you know, had to do with, you know, the front man and the looks and kind of things like that. But but was that something you foresaw or is it something that you just liked the band? You weren't really worried about that or did you really have that vision that this could get bigger than the, the scene had gone before? Well, firstly, I wasn't really aware of the history of death metal at all at that time. I didn't know any of the older death metal bands, really, um, as far as how that scene worked. I was kind of at the time into the kind of newer metalcore stuff like Kill Switch and All That Remains were like my two favorite bands back in, you know, 2004. Like I just was eating that up. And, and clearly Suicide Silence was not doing anything like that. No, but the way that audiences would react as far as, you know, karate kicking in the pit and moshing and stuff like, you know, I saw that when I first saw Suicide Silence and I saw it with such an extreme presentation on stage with such vocal conviction and the way Mitch moved like a praying mantis, as I would say. And I, I saw all that the first time I saw the band and I said, wow, this is like the next level of what I'm into. So I didn't really necessarily think about what had happened in the past with death metal and what scene was on the horizon or anything like that. Um, you know, and, and like you said, girls being into it, I didn't notice that at that point, but that was something that I very purposeful purposefully had in mind while managing the band is I wanted a broad appeal that I felt like I could build by showing a band that was very unique in such a way that guys would want to be in bands that, you know, that, uh, that are influenced or that want to sound like that. And then the, you know, to impress girls that are in, into those guys and everything. It's kind of just like this cycle of, of, uh, you know, the girls, the guys chasing the the girls and mm -hmm. being in bands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I just felt like that band did have it all, but really it's not like I sat down and thought a lot about it. I was just flying by the seat of my pants and I was just using my space as a, listen, I don't have connections to the rest of the industry. And to go, kind of go back to your original question about how tough it was to, to break in, I really used my internet savviness that I had developed from a very early age. I was always a computer tech guy in like high school. I had a fast internet connection before a lot of other people. T1, baby, you had the T1? Dude, I did have a T1 and I was huge into, dude, my whole career was built on what happened to me in high school, which is the whole Napster craze and everything. Like I was going nuts with that very early on before it caught fire. And then I got into like, unless you know, the police are on the way. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've reported you. Okay. But, but really the game changer was FTP servers where people would like host on their home computer drives and everything, entire well-organized catalogs of music. And I remember that's how I discovered Slipknot's self-titled record and everything. And, or actually it was like the mate feed kill repeat one and the self-title and all this stuff. I would, I would just download a bunch of random things that I'd never heard of. And then I'm listening to it for free. And I'm like, you know, of course you're not supposed to be doing that. But for me, that allowed me access to all this music and it was super exciting. And it allowed me to get into things organically because I'm downloading a band called Slipknot that that I have no preconceived notion about. I just get into it naturally. And that, yeah. that set the stage for everything to come later. And I think when I first heard Suicide Silence and when I, you know, resorted to, okay, this, I get the same feeling about this as I did when I first downloaded Slipknot in high school or something, you know? So, and I don't know a lot of people. I know people, but I'm not like connected in a way where people are going to listen to me hyping a band all day. So what, what do I know how to, to use my computer and what is the happening spot at the moment, my space, and how do I do that better than anyone else? And that is what I sought out to do. And that's what really gave Suicide Silence an, an upper hand early on. And then, 
you know, I can certainly get into where it, it went from there, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's really interesting. And it's obviously something we're still kind of evolving, right? Like everyone's trying to foresee, I think we, I, I guess in hindsight, you know, MySpace was actually really cool because you felt like you had some control over how you promote your band. Whereas now we're in a situation where obviously Facebook ended up becoming the predominant um, platform for social media. And, but Facebook was not really conducive to music and sharing music. Um, and it, and it kind of got better, I think over the years. And then obviously they changed their, their structure where uh, you have to pay uh, to basically reach, reach your people. Uh, because I think there was one of the downsides of MySpace uh, from a, user standpoint was basically it becoming a spam uh platform you know and i and i so in, in a lot of ways i actually kind of understand where facebook is coming from because facebook was never about hey we're just here to promote our band or we're gonna send you eight million messages it and um and because facebook in particular has become essentially a, a hub for all commerce and all marketing right so so it's not just music you're basically uh competing with every product that anyone could market to anyone you know um so i i kind of understand it like like it, i know people complain oh well i can't reach my fans but at the same time if you went on facebook and all you did was see tour dates and t-shirts for sale and you kind of probably wouldn't want to go there not that i not that i actually don't really go on my space or uh, facebook that much anymore um but uh so i so i do kind of understand that but that was a fundamental change and now there's kind of I mean, what is there? Is it spot? You know, kind of getting on a Spotify playlist. Is that the that re that really is the new jam, man? Getting on a Spotify playlist is kind of a you know a way to to reach new audiences to build up numbers that that seem to matter. Um, but but, uh, but that's something most bands don't really have. Like I said, you're not in control. You kind of have to rely on some gatekeeper. Exactly. That, that's why nothing's ever as good as MySpace music was. Like you said, it, the spam got crazy and it was sort of self-destructive by the, the music creators and fans themselves in, in a certain way. But that music player and the way that you could just go to myspace.com slash whatever the name of a band is and instantly you hear their their yeah. top four popular songs. And you, you can, which, which you can kind of do it. You can kind of do it Spotify, but then you can't just contact the band so easily directly or comment or like instantly integrate yourself in that yeah. music that you've discovered the way that you were able to to do back then and it just felt it was such a platform from the artist to the fans directly without that policing that that you you've mentioned with you know facebook and with spotify and while there does need to be a, a certain amount of of uh that kind of stuff so that a site doesn't get spammed to death i still am just disappointed that myspace wasn't able to figure it out and to reach that balance because you know, there was such a such a large community there for some artists that I worked with that I honestly never thought it could just disappear because it felt too significant to, to you know, me. Matt, I went back on MySpace and logged in, <laughs> and uh, just because I was trying to find these old messages, because uh, my cousin is a producer, I did a a hip hop version of the God Forbid song to the Fallen Heroes. I was like, I wanted to find this track. And they actually scrubbed yeah, every all day. your old messages, so they're gone. And I'm like, "Damn, MySpace, you had one job. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Couldn't even archive it." Probably. <laughs> um, so, um, so you were were you managing the band when uh, Mitch passed away? 
I absolutely was. And I was there at the hospital the night that he passed away. And just, I think I was probably the first person that got a phone call from his wife when that happened. And it was uh, something I was very involved with and didn't sleep that night, immediately launched the next morning uh, uh, a, a t-shirt to benefit uh, raising funds for his daughter's like future college fund and kind of sprung into action again with kind of my computer savvy and, and launched like a a PayPal donation site with art and t-shirt designs. Cause I, I owned a merch company as well, which was very uh, uh, fortunate that we had that at that time. And I was able to just do it so quickly that we ended up, you know, raising a tremendous amount of money that just like the, the fans were so, you know, unbelievably supportive, but it was such, you know, obviously a rough time for, for everyone in the band and everyone associated and, and to the fans. And, and just, it was so incredibly unfortunate. It's nothing that you ever, you know, foresee, uh, having to experience in your, in your life or work, but I certainly had to deal with it. And, um, you know, a lot of amazing things, including a, a memorial show, uh, you know, honoring him came from it and, and just so many, so much support, um, around it made it incredibly special to this day, all the, the years that have followed. But yeah, that was a, a rough time. And, and I was the manager through it all and, and through finding a new vocalist. And was there ever, was there a point where they were just going to like hang it up? It was absolutely discussed as to, you know, what are we going to do? And I think the Memorial show was the first thing we wanted to get out of the way, which happened actually very quickly within a couple of months after Mitch passed away, we had everybody out here and, uh, in Pomona, uh, tons of amazing guest vocalists and everything. Um, and we released that on, uh, DVD, Blu-ray, audio, CD, everything. And, and so that was kind of the first step to celebrate his life in that sort of way. And then discuss whether the band would, would continue. And, and, you know, they ultimately went with a vocalist that I participated in that memorial show, uh, Eddie Hermita, who was of All Shall Perish at the time. And, uh, yeah. And then I, I very much took what I had used the first time around as far as how do I build a band from nothingness. And I kind of had to go back at it again because so many fans had their strong opinions about your vocalist is irreplaceable. You should break up. Yeah. You should change your name. This guy isn't good enough. This guy isn't good enough. Like it was going to be very tough. So I really went to the core of, of, you know, how I feel like I raised our fan base with the band to begin with and just spoke to them very honestly about, you know, this is why we're doing this. This is our guy. We want to continue. We want to honor Mitch. And, um, and so I managed the band for, you know, a, a few years after that until, uh, until they let me go. Well, so the, the first record they did with Eddie, um, what's it called? They had a, uh, nothing. It is yeah. called You Can't Stop Me. You can't. I was like, nothing can stop me. I was somewhat, so, um, that record was very much in kind of the spirit of the previous record, but I, I thought it was so focused and it sounded awesome. Yeah. Uh, we used his, the same, same producer yeah. as Black Crown, Steve Evitz did that record. His vocal performance was unbelievable and the, the record did really well. Mm-hmm. The band seemed like they were doing very well. Absolutely. And then, um, so they, they parted ways with you between that record and the, re, the, the latest record. You could say between, but essentially the, the, self-titled full length that they did next was essentially done uh or almost done at the time that they uh that they fired me they were finishing up in the studio with ross robinson at the time so i had been involved all the way to to that point so what Um, what was your before the even before the uh the split happened what was your thoughts about the change and changing of uh the direction 
Uh, I was certainly open to it because the guys were all on the same page about wanting to do something different and, you know, creatively for them and not to please anyone. Not that I ever really thought that they made music just to please their fans in the past, but, you know, they seem to be very uh, conscious of not wanting to to do something like that and just make the music they were feeling. They very much wanted to work with Ross, and I know that, that he's a huge part of, like, what that record ended up being. Um, but... I'd be lying if I said that I that I fully got it or understood what they were going for at any point as they were demoing and once they were in the studio and that's ultimately why they they let me go. I mean, I told them when I was getting basically board mixes of what the songs were going to be that I didn't think it was good enough to to release that, that I didn't understand how it could possibly be accepted in a way that was going to keep the band's business as as uh sound as it would need to be for them to continue to make music in the the time that that we're at in the business of music these days it just you can't just alienate your fans or or just be like it's going to be okay and have it actually be okay like there's a difference between like having faith and being like realistic and like what you have to do in order to continue making music because it just you know it just doesn't sell like it like it used to. And there's just not that many avenues of, of commerce you can develop if people are not really into what you're doing. Yeah. So I had Mark on the show right before the album came out, you know, and I felt like, especially with how connected their fans were to the band that I, I literally said, on that, I was like, man, I feel like you guys are bulletproof. I think, I think you're going to be okay. And they really, it, that didn't happen. Um, the, the, well, the, cause see the fans had already been through so much with having to accept Eddie after Mitch had passed. And, and I was fully aware of, you know, how all that went and the fact that it was very trying for a lot of people to, to accept Eddie, but yeah. ultimately we, we made it work. And I just thought this was too quickly for them to then turn another corner yeah. and do something totally different because then those people that have come to accept Eddie could possibly blame him all, all yeah. over again. And, you know, which kind of ended up happening and that, and that ultimately it would, you know, make it a struggle for things to continue from that point. And, you know, as, as a member of their family, essentially, and being there from the beginning, I just told them my, my honest opinion. And they were obviously in a different mindset, going a different direction on a different train track entirely at that point than um than i was and you know all that of course led me to being the x-man adjure of (laughs) of them and and even stepping away from all my bands uh you know about a year year and a half later and being like all right i'm done managing bands and then so what was that about just you were just had enough of the whole kind of because the thing is i don't think people realize that you, you when you manage a heavy heavier bands um, there's kind of a limit, right, to how much money you can really make, right? And the biggest bands, the Slayers, the Lamb of Gods, the yeah. Ramsteins, you know, those are, there's like 12 of those bands, right? And, and a lot of those bands started so early that yeah. they were able to establish such a foundation that yeah. it's like they can't be stopped, yes. you know? Yes, and it's, so, if you're, but it's just, what I'm saying is that there's that realm you know mm-hmm. where there's you know your megadeth and judas priest and slipknot so but there's a handful of those and there, there's kind of everyone else and when you do extreme music there is kind of a cap right and then when you look at i i just can imagine this being being a manager 
of a of a metal band or an extreme metal band and then maybe you have another buddy who's a manager who works with a hip-hop artist or a pop artist and you're like damn that motherfucker just he just got himself a new house he just got a new car and you're like it, it, i wonder if it can be demoralizing almost in the same way where you see a musician who's kind of like you know what i'm sick of playing uh to 200 people you know dirty ass motherfuckers in this basement and making no money, I'm going to go become a DJ or something. Yeah, like Skrillex. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to uh, project that on you. Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it was that kind of, sh- that grind just kind of, work, you just had enough of it? or it, it was a grind, man, to the extent where obviously after your first band that you ever manage fires you, which you never think would happen after everything you've been through with them and all this stuff. And it's like, I've still got Memphis Mayfire. I've got some other acts like... I'm still doing okay, but it's almost like one foot out the door to like, do I really want to do this forever? Because I mean, that was the one relationship that like meant the world to me that, you know, because of the time spent, the history, all that stuff. And I just, I think I always knew because I started managing bands by accident and I want to be more involved in filmmaking and these sorts of things instead that, you know, it's not the kind of job you can have and have like a family and have kids at home and that's kind of stuff. Like even when things are going really well, they're stressful in a different kind of way than, than when they're going really poorly and then things are stressful financially. But even when things are going well, they, they can be very stressful on someone trying to have a home life, trying to have relationships. And as I'm getting older... You, you felt that being a manager, it was disruptive to kind of moving on in that direction? I... I did. I felt like it really was tough for me to have like good personal, you know relationships with like you know say a future like a girlfriend that i end up marrying why 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 do you why do you think that because i mean i I know plenty of people on that end of the industry seem to be pretty domesticated uh i think i probably just put so so much of myself into the job and particularly into managing suicide silence during those years and everything i was just incapable of not prioritizing them you know i would prioritize them so much and i would find that the you know the females i'd be meeting or whatever would it's just tough like are they into me are they into like the excitement of like the band management stuff and then even if they're chill it's like if i'm out away at a show or on tour there's like suspicions there's jealousies there's there's so many tough aspects to holding down a relationship it's almost like being in the band yeah and then back in you know and in those days i was just because again i didn't come from a music industry connected background or anything i just never had this kind of clout that i touted you know around where you know, where I was a certain kind of manager that had all these like limits and rules, like dudes could hit me up at two in the morning and like, there's an emergency and I'm like managing every aspect of the bands I work with. There was no no boundaries. Yeah. No boundaries. Like a dude would be in a fight with his girlfriend and all of a sudden he's not allowed to go on tour and I got to talk his girlfriend and letting him go, you know, like, so I'm like a therapist. I'm just like all these different, these things. Cause I take it on so fully, like it's mine. But at the end of the day, I'm so behind the scenes and like, so not, getting credit for these things or, or being known creatively in ways that I think I likely desire to, to, to be in the long run that I think I just kind of knew that I wasn't going to be able to do this forever. And I knew that the peak for some of these artists I was working with was kind of taking place around that time. It felt like that with mayhem and warped and like things like really like merchandise sales for some of my artists doing extremely well. I knew it wasn't really going to last. So once suicide silence, let me go. I started thinking about other like careers I could get into. And I started, I moved to thousand Oaks, started settling down with, uh, with my girlfriend, someone I found that like is a real good fit for me that I'm really happy about. So, 
you know, I started to, to prioritize things differently to the point where I eventually stepped away from, from managing bands for, for a bit. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenge because it's a grind. And, and like you said, there is something a bit demoralizing about looking on an Instagram for some, somebody that I just heard about yesterday, some hip hop or DJ artist. I looked, they got like three, four million like Instagram likes and like three, they've made like three posts or something. And I'm like, how the heck does it get this kind of following? I'm sitting here at like half a million for suicide silence on Instagram. And I'm like feeling super accomplished. Like I built that from person number one and, and just, and I look at some of these other genres and and the managers of these, these DJs and, and hip hop artists, and they have to deal with so, so many less personalities. There's not five or six guys in a band with like equal say or anything. So they deal with, with less can, you know, can work with more artists, at a time because of that. But those just aren't my, my genres of focus that I'm, yeah. that I'm passionate about, you know, and I wasn't just going to go work for something and try to get, you know, get money from it. If I didn't care about it, I'm after all, I'm doing it just because, I mean, I just love, uh, you know, the acts that I've worked with and been fully committed to them and just love metal. And that's kind of been the, uh, so the what process. did you, what did you do though? Um, in that, in that time? Uh, it, was. Yeah. It, it was only a period of a, like, six months to a year that I wasn't managing at all. And in that period of time, to be honest, I started day trading on the stock market. I got a little app called Robinhood on my uh, iPhone that is like commission-free trading. And I just dove headfirst into knowing nothing about the stock market and losing some uh, some money that I had in my savings along the way, kind of like paying for an expensive financial school. Um you just watch you know, a, lot, a lot of YouTube videos, dude, and some CNBC and and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I I uh, educated myself, and and now at this moment, I'm option trading on the side for like the first half of my Monday through Fridays, and then when it gets to around you know noonish, um, I start doing management related things for Suicide Silence because they're the only band I work with, and I kind of figured at this point I'm going to try a balance of working with just them because they need all of my attention to to turn the ship around and to make this next record what it needs to be and everything like that. How so. did, so how did uh, the reconciliation uh, take place? And by the way, was it, was the split contentious? Uh, was it, um, you know, was there difficulties around that or was it, or is it clean? I guess maybe if being together that long, almost can it, can it be clean? Yeah. Again, I feel, you know, I imagine it's like being married and, and having a divorce go down, you know, and at the end of the day, it's just like, Hey, I'm leaving you for this other family, for this other person sort of thing. So I certainly felt hurt by it, um, but I'm not the type to hold grudges. Yeah. And I, you know, and the band had such such a big part of my life and I'm such a part of their legacy and them a part of my, my life that I needed some time away from it for sure. But I wasn't going around, you know, talking crap about them or the record. I mean, I would certainly say... Um, you know, what I thought or felt to, to a certain extent, but, you know, I got a lot of love for, for those guys and everything that we had been through together. And, you know, I kind of have this belief that everything works out for a reason. It allowed me to focus on the relationship I mentioned earlier and, and move in with my girlfriend for the first time and, and all these sorts of things. So it all happened for a reason. I, I kept in touch with them loosely. I went to a couple of, of shows um, after some time had passed um, and really, it had been about two, two and a half years, right? Because uh, I parted ways with them in 2016 and then got back with them late in 2018. So like two years. And then, you know, Garza and I just sat down at a Buffalo Wild Wings. And it was one of those 
let's address the elephant in the room sort of thing, which, you know, we were kind of getting together and I knew that they were, um, you know, looking to maybe go another direction management wise, uh, cause it was just hard for them to be prioritized at the current place they were at given the climate and the last record and how it, how well it didn't do and things like that. So, you know, so Garza and I talked about it and I thought about it for a couple of weeks, maybe not even after we sat down and eventually I, uh, just jumped right in in about beginning of November of, of 2018. And now here we are, uh, you know, in May and, uh, of 2019 and the guys are hitting the studio to, to do a new record. So it's, uh, yeah, it happened kind of fast once it, once it happened, but diving into action is kind of just the, the MO with me and these guys and no time to waste. You only get one shot at, at, you know, coming back and, and making sure this band can continue. Yeah, I mean, um, hopefully, well, actually, not hopefully. I'm sure I'll get somebody on. Probably get, probably get Alex. I mean, it's, it's overdue to get Alex on the show, and I, and I still have to get Eddie on just to do like his whole All Shall Perish X Men <laughs> story. Because, totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, because I was, I'm such a huge fan of All Shall Perish. Dude, I'm so. a huge fan of All Shall Perish too, and that's why I hate these comments I see from fans who are like, you know, bring back All Shall Perish, and like you guys killed All Shall Perish there by, wasn't that by, in- by, by taking Eddie away. Believe me, there were other issues with All Shall well, Perish no, with that loss- band. The lawsuit. Yeah, there. exactly. There yeah. are other reasons why that band wasn't going to be able to continue, and that's why I wish some of these like internet warriors would realize that you know that behind the scenes, just because someone's in another band or was in another band and then he comes and joins this band it doesn't mean that that other band would be actively making music today with yeah. him as well, the Fra- vocalist, francisco you know? was kind of filling me in on some of the crazy stuff uh when i just toured with them so there's yeah there's a lot of issues hopefully hopefully that stuff can get reconciled and they can do some stuff but you're right great band one of my favorites from that from that era of well music. i'm a, i'm of the the mind and I'll, I'll i'll say it before and hope i get Eddie on here i'll tell him to his face that awaken the dreamers is i think the best deathcore album ever made my opinion. Just one guy's opinion. Could be wrong, but you know. See, I like the price of existence even more, but because of, just because of the nature of when I heard it and how I was getting into that style at that time. But I do respect Awaken the Dreamers and I certainly love the album. So I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. But I'm also partial to the last record they did because I managed the band during the time that they did. I don't think I even listened to the last record. I have to go. I have to go check that. The one, out the one that Fran's on. You don't even listen to that one. It tells you how I'm a bad. I'm a bad fan. Yeah, it's called "This Is Where It Ends," and that See? was actually where their where their career ended to this point. Right. Um, well, when and, you leave, I'm gonna put that shit on, dude. Right? It's actually an amazing album. It's, I'm sure it's, it is. It's one of my favorites. Partial. I guess because I worked on, you know, with them on it, but you know, it had helped that I had managed Eddie before, you know, in that band for that album, when we were considering bringing him on as a new vocalist to Suicide Sound. So it was someone I had a rapport with and so did the band. So there were a lot of reasons why he was, you know, the guy and, and is the guy and, you know, just fans got to realize it can't always be exactly how they want it in their perfect world of their favorite bands, like staying together and making albums forever, you know? So we're doing the best we can with Eddie and Suicide Sounds. Um, no, but what I was saying is that I, you know, I will hopefully bring someone from the band on to kind of get more in depth uh, about kind of the feelings on on this. But um, you know, after the release of of the self titled record, you know, like what is what is the vibe like kind of collective, um, you know, kind of emotional state? Because I know Mark, you know, took like a hiatus from the band and he was kind of going through his own stuff and, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, and I think people tend to look at life 
like uh, there's success and there's failure, and you want to be successful, you don't want failure. Um, but I I really think that even like even the word failure, I think is almost like undermines it because I think there's growth and there's things that can happen that are super beneficial to you by trying to do A and then B happens. And then all of a sudden you discover something about yourself or you, you kind of go through different things and you kind of develop in a, in a way. Um, and I don't, like I said, I don't want to speak for those, for those guys, but um, what is the, the kind of tenor of, 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 of the band? Because I've, I've heard rumblings that the, the new music is definitely more kind of, they've gone back to being a bit more heavy and kind of in that, in that uh, frame, frame of things. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to do the speaking for you, but uh, what's the vibe? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. The vibe is probably the best it's ever been to my memory. You know, obviously things change forever after Mitch passed away and it's, you know, hard to have the vibe from the early days of that lineup and all those sorts of things. But as far as just overall the band, with me as their manager, you know, the vibe is as good as it's ever been. And my understanding of the new music they're making is like totally a hundred percent with, you know, their understanding and the label's understanding and the producer's understanding and everybody's really in a great spot. And, uh, you know, it, it took a lot of coming together to get to this point. Like you had mentioned, you know, Mark was kind of on the, on the outside for a bit, uh, doing his own things out, you know, separate from the band, and, uh, you know, but when I came back, I kind of rallied the troops and, and I guess if anything, put the pieces together and sped the process up of, you know, let's make a record that we can all be proud of that we, you know, that has a part of us all in there, uh, that includes the fans as far as not making it for them or not making it as a response to the last record or not, um, you know, just trying to do the cleansing part two or anything like that, but just like, Let's everyone put in their input based on everything we know and love about this band and its history and and what everyone's strengths are. And I think really just tapping into all that and in a very different way than it was on the last record with Ross Robinson. And, and the guys were obviously very much in a certain zone with him on Venice Beach that was just like well, I think there's, a totally different mind space. You know, I still think there's a lot of really cool stuff on that on that record and and it, in a lot of ways like let's look at a band like machine head for example which is a pretty close yeah. uh parallel in a band that had a certain sound and then had a couple records where they they did they went away from that sound and using the same producer ross ross robinson i'd say the difference is the record machine head did with ross was something that was commercially connected to what was going on in that moment Whereas Suicide Silence did something that was like it was less quote unquote extreme, but it wasn't like a a commercial a play for commercialism, right? They didn't make a radio rock album, you know. Exactly. They made something that was more kind of esoteric and almost like artsy, you know. Um, and and so exactly, which is something they wanted to do at the time, and they accomplished what they wanted to do, but it's not really what the majority of people that that listen to the band want out of listening to that particular band and i think that's just 
kind of a, a result that came of it. But well, I, I agree with you about the machine head references, by the way. I'd, I've always thought of it in that same kind of comparative sense. And I'm a big fan of machine head and the different eras and how Rob reacted to criticism and how the records changed, you know, one to another. And I can find ways to, to like them all. And I certainly, um, you know, believe that that Suicide Silence album that they just did, that self-titled full length, has a place in their catalog and that elements of that will Dude, probably the- always exist in the future music to some extent or another, wherever you choose to to find it. But There are know. songs off that record that fucking pop live. Like, there's... True. Live was never really uh, a question and I was never really worried about the songs live either because I knew that they would heavy them up live, you know? But... The production. But, but but that was my whole thing with just if the songs are going to be presented more extreme live, then I just I just didn't understand why they would be less extreme on on the record, really. Well, I'll give you I'll give you, you know what the, the parallel for me was is um you ever you know Saint Saint Anger, the Metallic album that's obviously kind of known for having bad production. Now I, I don't want to actually compare it to that because <laughs> I don't think it's that's it's okay you can't because I wasn't involved. Well, no, no. I'm saying but that's a, it's an extreme version of that. But yeah, so they you had the album, and then there was a if you bought like the special edition of Saint Anger, there was a a them basically jamming the album in a rehearsal, and it sounded and a lot better. It sounded better. Yeah. And then when I I remember I, I actually when I did that interview with Mark, I went to the rehearsal, so I got to see the band rehearse, and the songs did have a, it sounded more polished, yeah, live, and obviously that almost everything sounds heavier live in many respects, but. In a way, it's it's that what I want from a production is I don't ever want it to diminish the band. Like, it should elevate. Like, it should sound, the album should sound like the best show you've ever played, right? It should be the best version of that. And I think with the way metal is, you know, we're now, especially now, the listeners are tuned to a certain type of production, a certain type of presentation, a certain type of cleanliness. And I get, like, listen, I'm... The overproduction kind of thing, I think, is can be annoying and samey and very formulaic. Um, you know, and even coming from a band like Bad Wolves, where it's like, yeah, we make very produced sounding records, but that's that's what we do. That's our thing. And I totally understand the, the 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 want to go the opposite direction, but I never want to see a band diminished. I want it to sound like the best version of it. And my, my thing is, with Ross is that with certain types of bands, I think going with production is great, but sometimes you probably should just get someone more in our world to like mix it, just to give it that extra polish on it. And the songs could be pretty much the same, but it just, just once you, you go those different steps, and then it's sometimes about splitting the difference, right? Like you, I think you could take that same direction, right? And just maybe just do like half of it, right? Yeah. So, so it's not quite as far. And then with the mix... Maybe having Zeus mix it or or Evitz mix it, and then so it's still even though the songs artistically are going in a different direction, the sonics are not so far removed that people don't feel like it's that different. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So they, they went too far too quickly, and I think part of that is what you're saying. They could have done some things to make the record a little half step in that direction, as opposed to fully in the in the deep end and perhaps then on the record afterwards they could have gone further in that same direction or something yeah. like that but, but and i hope and i hope they don't abandon all of those those different because the, the thing i really like about the self-title is i love the dynamics um i like they did more things with like guitar effects i think that are really interesting um 
I think the riffs are still fucking awesome and still have that vibe. And I and I and I, and I want Eddie to keep singing. I don't want him to stop. Like I think he has a really cool singing voice. And um, I don't know if that's gonna happen. You know, probably it's like, you know, because I don't think it's about that. I mean, uh, like Whitechapel. You know, they have some singing on 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 their new record, and and people are still on board. But it's very, like I said, it's very like. You know, we're, they're not just going to, to, totally yeah. left field. They're kind of trying to. It's done in a very pleasing way that isn't as like experimental yeah, yeah, per yeah. se. And and I guess my, the best way to sum up that that self titled record with those guys and the way I always felt is like this is a record that if the fans were there with them in Ross's studio while they were making these songs and hearing how they came together. Do they, is there a documentary or anything like that? There's a lot of content that I think was filmed that was never really cut together or released or anything like that, that I think would be a very unique piece to put together and, and be made, you know, viewable in the future to kind of give people a trip down how that record came to be. But I think the biggest issue is it's just hard to go where the band had gone with their previous records as, as a fan, you're there with them. And then just not knowing how they got to this place and what these songs mean to them and and what where they were at at this particular point in their lives and their in their creative realm and everything i think that's really where where the disconnect was and that's where i had to tell them like i don't know how to translate this to your fan base and ultimately that was the disconnect and the way you say it sounds better in a rehearsal space and live and everything is they can tra- they can tell their story a lot better in the room to the fans, oops, um, <laughs> as I throw the mic around, um, they can tell their story with these songs to the fans a lot better in the same room with that energy and all that. But to not be there while the songs are being crafted and not understand how they got from point A to you know all the way to point D, it's just with the short uh, attention span that music listeners have these days, they're just not giving it the the amount of listens and in depth, at least a lot of people aren't that it would take to really dive into the experimental nature of, of what these songs mean well, to the well, band. Well, one thing I'll say, I'm a, I am a big fan of, of Ross Robinson. And I think, uh, he's been a part of so many pivotal groundbreaking r- records. Um, but I do think it's different for certain bands, you know, with, with, with him and how, how it kind of comes off. I think there's mostly hits. There's some, some misses. Um, but I, I do think that collaboration, I think, was still it made makes complete sense to me. And I'm so and I'm actually really, really glad it happened. I, and I actually wrote an article when I was writing for VH1 about albums like deviation records that get kind of uh, a lot of public backlash, but that I really liked. Right. So I, I mentioned um, on there, you know, like the load records and uh, what was that? Uh, Sound of White Noise by uh anthrax and uh even slither by earth crisis i don't know how 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 deep cuts you go you go with that but i i mentioned a bunch of stuff like that but i'm always going to give an artist credit for taking chances and doing yeah. and going against the grain i always find that even if it doesn't it's not a 100 percent 10 out of 10 hit um i always find that more interesting you know as you know, someone who who enjoys art and likes to see just different things. You know, I'd rather a band do something crazy and weird than just make the same record. You know, yeah. and I know some people do like they like. Hey, I want my Motorhead to sound like this. I want my ACDC to sound like this. I want my Cannibal Corpse to sound like this, and have a thing. And I think that's great. Um, and you know, and for some bands, that's just that's what they do. But I I love like for example like Bring Me the Horizon that every record they change and every record they 
go, they do something where now we, we're going to expect them to change, right? Where they do it every record. I, I think there's just something fundamentally interesting with that. Um, yeah. And they, and they obviously had, you know, them as an example, had a whole team around them for these developments that really, you know, bought into the direction and kind of, at least from the outside looking in, had a, a big plan to execute it and everything. It wasn't just kind of like a, let's do this and see how it goes. It just was a, a very, not just the band themselves, but an entire kind of group and team effort. And and the tough part comes, you know, like you said, you appreciate the experimentation bands do and, and so do I, but the problem is so many people, you know, that drive the band's ability to continue and, and do business and everything, you know, don't buy into such drastic uh, album changes and experimentations that it becomes tough when you've got a, a label that's funding it and you know fans that you know are, are spending money that essentially just allows the band to continue and do another record when those you know dissipate as a result of straying from your from your path then it just becomes well then if you're left with a band that can't even continue as a band then you know is the experimentation really worth it if you can't even keep making music so there's just there's just that trade-off and I, I do think you know, it has a place in their discography, like you've said, and, and it's going to, you know, forever be that record that's different. And, you know, uh, it's my job to kind of come in here and and make the best overall Suicide Silence record that the band has has ever done. And that's kind of our our goal and mindset at this point. And I'm sure if there's another record after that, it'll be the the same kind of thing. But I think the team af- team effort and having me back involved and having some of the key uh, people that were involved back in the day kind of reinvigorated, um, it it feels good, man. And I thought I was going to be on this podcast as a true ex-manager uh, <laughs> when we first talked about this. And now here I am back managing again. It's one of those things where it's like family, you know, and, you know, I just couldn't say no to you know, to really making sure that I did my best possible job to preserve this band's legacy because they've been through so much. And it's just like, I don't want to think back as, oh, that's that band that I worked with that like did a weird record and then they just like fell off or something, you know, like, and they went through so much already with their vocalists. It's just... Well, like using the Machine Head um, example, that's a band that had ups and they had downs and they had bigger ups. And now right now they're going through a... They had another down, you know, down at least, you know, critically. There was a lot of uh, divisiveness on the last record and, uh, you know, band members, longtime members quit. Um, But I think one thing in particular about metal fans and heavy music fans, it's like if you build it, they will come. If you do, if you bring the goods, right, they, you know, they are pretty much ready to come back at any point. But they, you got to give them, and it's not like I said, it's not necessarily Oh, we're going. It's not you know fan service, or we're going to do it just for the fans. But if you just if you're on point and you knock it out of the park, um, those opportunities I think are always there to have some kind of second wind, you know. Um, so it's all it's all it's all it's all about that, you know, um, and kind of finding that that thing that kind of that kind of works. And you've seen so many bands that have had many chapters, you know, in their, in, the, in their career. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to see, see what happens. Absolutely, man. Um, before, before we go, um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, you said that you went to school for film mm-hmm. and, uh, so what, what was your, um, like how far along did you, did you get that? You said you directed some, some music videos and things like that. 
Yeah, back when uh, Headbangers Ball and Uranium were happening, I had uh, like an Unearth video, a Six Feet Under video, uh, things like that. I started directing videos for Metal Blade while I was still in college, uh, like senior year of college, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I graduated with a degree in film production and an emphasis in editing. I worked on some short films. I filmed a lot of, you know, wrestling videos. I filmed wrestling a lot of, videos. Yeah, just like amateur wrestling stuff. It was super fun, like for the UPW and things like that. I was doing that out of college. You have a sick camera? Dude, I, I did back then at a sick camera, but guess what? You can buy a camera better than that now at like your local electronic store for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And really? mine was like a few thousand back in Let me know what the early 2000s. Because inevitably, I probably have to start like a YouTube page, right? Like you can't just have like a podcast, right? You have to. Yeah, for videos, YouTube is definitely the, the launch pad. And so, you know, so I would I would film various live event type things and uh, a lot of live performances. I have tapes and tapes, many DV tapes of all sorts of old tours. I, I probably even have God, God forbid. I probably filmed God forbid at some point. Where? For all I remember, I filmed at the showcase all the time. I filmed at like that venue that was in Southgate for a while. I filmed it like in Ventura a few times. I got tapes and tapes. I got but like, just for yourself, or did you have like a what, like a metal injection type website? Uh, or I would sometimes put it up on my Mental Suplex Productions, which was my video production company. I would sometimes put things up, or I would contact the labels. Hell, I filmed like a summer slaughter at House of Blues, L.A. Like multi camera for like Black Dahlia and, and Whitechapel, I think, like eight cameras. Stuff that's never been released. I got all this crazy, crazy great footage that, that could go out there. But I mean, I've got like Azalea dying with Winter Solstice and, you know, BT Bam and stuff at the showcase. I got all these showcase theater concerts you that could, I film with like two or three cameras. And I'm planning on going through all this at some point. Yeah, kind you of could just start like a, a really cool, out. your own YouTube page of like, just Dude, cool. Got all these tapes of reflux with Tosin, young Tosin shredding. That's sick. <laughs> and, and all this from back in the day. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I got to the point where I was really actively filming bands, doing, you know, live DVDs, music videos, things like that. But it started getting to a point where like budgets were so tight from labels and bands that I was interested in filming for. I couldn't like really make money from that stuff. I never really put the emphasis in YouTube to the point where I was like monetizing things and, and all that. So the band management thing just really what happened is it just took hold of my life. And I just was obsessed with breaking suicide silence. I had just told everyone like, this is going to be big. This is going to be big. And I just, you know, hyped it and, and, uh, you know, just believed it to such an extent that that became my life for, for years. And I kind of did the video stuff on the side for them, which was kind of a helpful bonus you get from me being your manager is I film shows, edit them together, put videos up, all that just, you know, for no extra charge or anything. And it just helps fuel, um, you know, content creation, which at the time was kind of just on the cusp of what it, what it is today. But, um, being we're in LA, did you have aspirations to get into the, the film world or, or television or that, that end uh, of things? Not so much TV. I've always gravitated toward feature length, uh, films, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly had a desire and still have a desire to to do that. So, what's your vibe? Like, what's your? Give me some of your favorite films, dude. You don't have to like. It doesn't have to be an order or anything. But just throw <laughs> like general. Like, I'm one of these weird guys that loves this movie, The Fountain. You familiar with it? Are you fucking kidding me? Love it. I, I, I've seen. I saw. That's like one of the most important movies to me. See, me too. And I get so much, you know, crap for it. But so let me let me ask you this question. By the way, that's one of the 
greatest uh, film scores ever created. Oh, that's completely. Like, that's what I put on for if I'm writing something, I want to just get. Yeah, it Clint in. Mansell's amazing. I saw him live in LA at, at one point doing. Uh, he did that song and stuff from Requiem and all that, and it was amazing. Dude. Was it with the Kronos Quartet or was it like another? Did I see him with that? I I, I think I saw him and Kronos Quartet. I'm not I'm not entirely dude, sure. But I need uh, I need to see that too. Uh, but so yeah. it was so sick. So if you guys know, so uh, the Fountain is a Darren Aronofsky film, um, and he also did. Uh, Requiem for a Dream and uh, Mother recently, which was very divisive. Yeah, Black Swan, The Wrestler. <laughs> yeah. Um, so okay, so so st- stuff like that. What else? Yeah, more of you know the the thinkers uh, types of films, and you know I love movies like True Romance, Big Lebowski. I mean, I probably love a lot of the same movies you. These do. are that's, all my. That's I why just got goosebumps because that's I, why I'm on this podcast, dude. Because you don't have a True Romance a, tattoo, right? Huh. Oh, dude, I did not even I did not even know that. <laughs> but what I wanted to say about why this podcast is so special for me to be on, because I've never been on a podcast, I've never even publicly spoken about my career or anything like that until now. And this is so great to me because you've been my acquaintance for a long time, but I don't, you know, particularly know you super well and vice versa. So it's just a great way to get to know each other because what I know of you is you love the NBA, films metal and all the stuff which are like my three and, and politics less and less and less <laughs> and my three yeah i'm not super into politics at all the only reason i'm even into that these days to any extent is through the stock stuff that i'm doing yeah. it's making me aware of, of world events and i live in dude i never knew this and i never thought about this in regards to the stock market but now that i'm doing day trading when the president tweets it, it, affects- it changes whether i'm up thousands or down thousands just based on a tweet that he sends that is how silly this world is that i we stopped live in today. i stopped following on twitter <laughs> I, I just had enough because it, it it used to be like all right you have to know these things because it's important and then when he first because you thought like when he became president he would just like stop doing that or he'd be like like be presidential and then it didn't stop and then it was just funny like he would say like because it would be shocking at first you're like this motherfucker is literally like threatening nuclear war on motherfuckers on twitter i'm like this is scary right and then after a while i was like oh like no one really takes this dude serious he just says shit everyone just like yeah we don't we don't care and then so then it was just entertaining and then after a while i was like this is literally adding nothing to my life it's just i'm just i just get like there's this child over here just saying crazy shit and it's just so anyway little rant there sorry but real quick other movies i love yes the departed django unchained Man, just, okay, so we basically like the same shit. But I like entertaining action films like True Lies, amazing. I could watch it a million times. Great, great I mean, film. there's and and seminal movies like Forrest Gump that changed my life back in 1994 when I saw that in the theater. I was I behaved around my parents in a way that I had never behaved before. <laughs> I was like trying to be Forrest Gump. I was like this person accomplished so much through such hardships that it was my first kind of eyes into the the world of like people less fortunate than me in like a big magnitude sort of way and it just it changed my personality seeing that movie and i'll always remember that's what you took away from that movie how that affected i think here's the thing about forrest gump right (laughs) he is basically the most talented man in america that ping pong man i'm telling you. listen he was all right he was amazing at running and he was amazing in football then he goes to vietnam and he's he's amazing at war i guess amazing at surviving uh, he becomes a, he just was just good at a bunch of shit. But apparently he's he had like a learning disability. We're supposed to think he had a he he was not uh, he had a low IQ. Yeah, I guess and teased a lot as a child. But he like was that. good. But it's but it's kind of like you know there's a lot of like people who aren't that bright. But if you're just like good at everything, 
you know. But it's almost like he just didn't know he was capable of these things until he completely, you know, freed himself into the world. But there is, you know, you know the uh, what's that term, Mary Sue? Like in a, this is a a film or story. It's a story, um, you know, uh, kind of. What's wrong? Like a device, they say, of like, or like a, a poor writing thing when you have, and he, and he called it Mary Sue because it's almost always a woman for whatever reason, or the people that notice it tend to be hating on women, is that when you have a character who is just preternaturally good at something without having earned it, right? So this is like one of the big complaints about The Last Jedi. It's like, why, or the, the new Star Wars movies, like, why is Rey so good at everything? Like, we never saw her training montage or no shit, right? Exactly. Um, so people complain about that. I think it's Mary Sue. Anyway. By the way, another movie I love right on your wall next to you, The Thing. The I, I even like the remade thing that came out a, a few years back. I thought it was a prequel. That one? Yeah, well, it is a prequel, but I just call it the remade thing just because it's... Just, I never saw Just because it. it's just called The Thing. But yes, you're right. I never saw it, but I definitely... Dude, you have to see it. It's really, really good. All right. And know. because it's a prequel, as you mentioned, it doesn't just retell the same story it's a similar story but the, it's basically but the way how it, the, the time. it yeah. got in the ice yeah and it's and they added to to it perfectly and right. it's it's really well executed i have to say it's one of the better well the thing is my uh, favorite horror film with dude. with uh the shining being like right underneath it but the thing I, and i watched it recently and it, it just it's perfect it's it, perfect it, it really is i completely agree yeah i uh don't know if there's anything else you wanted to to cover but i certainly appreciate getting to know you better on your podcast since we have so many similar interests and uh, I just know you to be a well-respected good dude in the metal community and I'm really happy you had me on right on well now that you live close if uh and I know you like good movies and basketball I got someone to watch watch movies and basketball with (laughs) party on Wayne let's do it right yo Jerry thank you so much for coming on the show this is this is a lot of fun man thank you doc yes sir
So that actually was a band called Big Wreck, which whose band that has been around forever, and I'm painfully just discovering. And uh, it's a single they just put out called Too Far Gone. And uh, there's a little bit of tragedy involved with this as they're uh, one of the guitar players in the band, Brian Doherty, just passed away. But, um, you know, so definitely rest in peace to him. And it's it's such a such a shame because I've, I've been watching a lot some live footage. And, and the, dude, these, this band is unbelievable, you know, kind of keeping with the the prog rock theme of this. Some of the music being played on this this episode, obviously having nothing to do with uh, Suicide Silence or our guest, Jerry Club, by the way, which I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Shout out to Jerry. Thank you so much for him coming on the show. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I just discovered this band, and there's, a, there's another really great song. I, I was debating which song to play, a song called Ghosts, that uh, you know, basically sounds almost like a newer version of like Pink Floyd or, or something. And this, the lead singer of Big Wreck, who also plays lead guitar, and the guy's like one of the sickest guitar players I've ever seen in my life. I'll tell you, if Soundgarden ever wanted to do a reunion and they wanted a guy, I would say get this guy because he is a bona fide badass. You can hear that voice. That, sh- that shit's insane. So check out Big Wreck. You know, and they're not paying me. I'm just, I just, I just like it. And, you know, hopefully, you know, I discover something new, even though it's, it's not really a new band, but thank, but a new song nonetheless. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do? I think I'm going to go to the movies because I'm grown up. It's my day off, and I do what I want. I do what I want, God damn it. That's all I got. Love you guys. Keep listening to the show. Keep telling your friends. Tell your mama. Tell your grandmama. And tell your baby mama that the X-Man is coming for him. All right. Clearly, I'm losing it. Mama out. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.